Well, good morning, Sailorville Church. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, pull it out. I don't have one particular base text this morning, but I could probably give you a couple of them. Instead, you're just going to get a you're just going to get a bevy of truth this morning. Okay, uh, it's sort of the nature of these messages we're preaching in this series. Your questions, God's answers. It is by nature a topical series. We, we have texts. We go into the Word of God. Uh, we don't normally preach this way throughout the year. We take a passage, a book in the Bible, and cut through it expositionally. That's our preference. But every once in a while, we need to deal with different theologies, and the questions that come, the hard questions that come our way, uh, require us to put together a composite, so to speak, of Scripture which will help you, hopefully, to understand uh, and get answers to your questions. So today we are dealing with God's sovereignty and my responsibility. So uh, just the other day, a friend of mine from down south uh, sent me this picture. I was curious when I looked at it. He said, this is Franklin Graham, you know, the son of the, you know, the you know, the, the eminent uh, Billy Graham, now with the Lord. And I, I wish he'd run for president, he said, with a Bible in one hand and a U.S. Constitution in the other. And I texted him back. I said, that's funny. The only thing I see is a gun over his heart. Well, yeah. You know, Jesus said, you know, get it by a sword, he said. I couldn't believe this exchange I was having with this guy. What ensued was this exchange over the Christian's trust in God to protect him and his responsibility to protect himself. Now, forget your position on gun rights, okay? Just forget that. This isn't about that at all. What struck me in the moment was how we are constantly being presented with juxtaposition, that's a, that's a good word. It just means side by side. That's all, something that's juxtaposed is side by side with something. We are constantly being presented with juxtapositions uh, of God's sovereignty and our responsibility in life. Would you agree? And by the way, neither one negating the other. So we are in this series, Your Questions, God's Answers. Here's the question of the day. If God controls all things, all right, in the end, how am I more responsible for my actions than a robot in a factory or a pawn on a chessboard? Have you asked something like that before? Raise your hand if you've asked a question something like that before. Several of you have. The inspiration of this series, this entire series, I suggested this to the elders and we picked it up, but the inspiration came, as I mentioned in the first message, with my neighbor Amy, uh, sweet young lady, mother, uh, wife, mother of a, a little family, a couple of kids, and uh, she is super inquisitive theologically and constantly firing questions my way. And, in fact, so I started recording those questions and the answers to those questions and I told her if I ever wrote on this or preached on it, I think I'd probably call it Answers to Amy. So today's question comes from one of her questions that are often asked along those lines. Here is in part how she put it. My head is spinning with where free will begins and ends. 
Like, what choices God gives us, and, and do we actually have zero responsibility in choosing him in salvation? And how does that not make us partial robots or puppets? Her question actually prompted me to share an illustration with her that I had rolling around my head for many, many years, and I'll share that with you later. But we are talking about God's sovereignty and our responsibility, so it's a good reminder. I like short, concise understandable, memorizable definitions. The sovereignty of God is just God's rule over all things. That's, that's what sovereignty is, God ruling. Sovereign means to rule, means to control. Okay, so God's rule or his control never negates responsibility in any given matter. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said in Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much shall be what? Required. That, that implies responsibility, accountability. So the writer of Proverbs, many of you are used to, and you've actually quoted these, verse, these verses. Proverbs 16, 9 says, man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So you've got responsibility and sovereignty here. Later on in chapter 21, uh, the writer of Proverbs says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but safety is from the Lord. Okay. So in both those instances, man is, wait for it, doing something. In one instance, he's planning his schedule. In another, he's prepping for battle. Yet in both instances, God is behind the scenes, perfectly working out his predetermined outcome. So that in the end, there is no arguing, okay, in the planning, and there's, and there, and there's no resistance in the preparation for battle. What I want to do, and this is not exhaustive, okay, but I think it's a, it's, it's a list that will, that will suffice for the morning. I want to give you seven examples of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, and they're going to be in juxtaposition, but not in conflict with one another. Does that make sense? Okay, so seven examples of God's sovereignty and our responsibility this morning. The first one is just government, so we since sort of alluded to that just a moment ago. Uh, the Bible tells us in, in the psalm you're looking at here, Psalm 75, it says, Exaltation does not come from the east or the west or the south. God is judge who lifts up one, puts down another. Have you ever read that? God is the one who establishes governments. And we're told in Romans 13 that very thing. And while God raises up governments, according to Romans 13, we are to obey our government. We're told to do that. And anybody who resists that, especially in this day where so many, even Christians, are resisting the government. You have to remember, if your conscience, if your biblical conscience isn't violated, you're called to obey. Remember, it was Nero. That was emperor of Rome when Paul wrote those words in Romans 13. This guy would cover Christians with pitch and light them on fire in his, in his patio. So it's in that context that Paul is saying, be obedient. So you remember wicked Haman? Remember the story in Esther? So you got Haman, who is like the, he's second in charge to the king, Azuerus. And uh, uh, he's like the first Hitler. He, he, he threatens to annihilate all of the Jews, and there's even a, a decree that's gone out to that end. 
Esther, in the providence of God, has become the queen. She's a Jewess. Her uncle is Mordecai. Mordecai gets wind of the plan to annihilate all the Jews, and he goes to Esther and makes his appeal to Esther to make her appeal to the king. But if you did so, and the king didn't extend his staff, you did so at the pain of your life, right? Many of you remember that story. But if you remember clearly, you know that Esther, who is a, she's a, she's a hero in the story, but yet she actually balked at that moment. Do you remember that? She, uh, she knew her life was on the line if she went in there. And that's when one of the most famous, if not the most famous, uh, lines take place in the book of Esther, where Mordecai replies to his niece. He says to her in the moment, before she goes to the king, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And then the clincher. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? So Mordecai understood the difference between sovereignty and responsibility. And while God would surely not allow the Jews to be wiped out, Mordecai makes his appeal to his niece to do something, which, of course, she did. God often uses our obedience to enact his sovereign purposes. Remember that. So government is one way. Salvation, and we'll be, we're going to spend a lot more time on this later. Salvation is, a, is another way in which you see the juxtaposition of sovereignty and responsibility. This is the one most people really wrestle with. God chooses before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4, right? That's what the Bible says. No arguing there. And yet we are commanded in Scripture to, to believe, right? Whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but he who does not believe is already condemned. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. These are commandments to believe. So we have those two in juxtaposition. And then there's lifespan. This is another big one because in this health-conscious generation that we live in, I mean, David said, my times are what? In your hands, Psalm 31, verse 15, right? And Job said, man's days are determined. God has decreed the number of his months and set boundaries on them which he cannot exceed. Have you ever read that? That's why we say when your number's up, there it is. So our lifespan is determined by God. Can I get an amen? And yet, we're told to be conscious about the way we live. And so Paul, even in the New Testament, in a pastoral epistle of all things, says to young Timothy, he says, Timothy, uh, bodily exercise does have profit. So there's something, there's, this, is, this is before this day in which we live now. He even tells him in the next chapter, and I'm not advocating this necessarily, but he says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. I'm concerned for your health, Timothy. So our health, our lifespan is ultimately in God's hands. But yet we are responsible in juxtaposition, right? Just before I came to Sailorville here, I, we led a couple to Christ, a doctor and his wife to Christ up in the... Um, 
up in northern Iowa. And uh, just as we made our way here, we found out that she had cancer. She was in her 30s. And uh, the cancer was just taking off and uh, spreading. And she was doing everything within her means, doctoring, getting chemotherapy, all of the medicines to save her young life. She had a baby just a couple of months old and a couple other little kids. And uh, one day I was sitting. We would made our move. We were staying close to them. But I was, I was at our home here. I'd only, it was the first year of pastoring here. And uh, I was reading it in the Psalms, and I came to Psalm 115, where it says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name give glory for your mercy and your truth's sake. And that's what the first verse says. But the second verse, as odd as it seemed to me, just jumped out at me. It says, why should the nations say, where is your God? And then the psalmist answers the question, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. You've read that, right? And I memorized it. And I remember thinking, why, why would you want me to memorize this, Lord? And then my phone rang, and it was Molly, my friend, who was dying of cancer. She said, Pat, I just got a note from the doctor. She basically said, Molly, get your house in order. There's nothing else we can do. You will be gone in the next couple of months. And uh, she goes, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm at peace in my soul. I've been saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I praise the Lord for that. And uh, she goes, but... But what do I do about my dad? He is so angry. He is so angry. In fact, as soon as the doctor gave his report, he looked right at me and said, where's your God now, Molly? And I was sitting there going, I have an answer to that. I said, Molly, you tell your dad your God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. And that's exactly what he told her, what she told him. And she did go to glory soon thereafter. Our lifespan and our health, they're in juxtaposition. Prayer, this is another one we struggle over, right? And we're, no, we're told Ephesians 1, 11, that God brings everything to pass according to the counsel of his own will, predestined. And yet in Philippians chapter 4, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but what? Pray about everything. So God controls everything, And we're to pray about everything. What? I remember once after a powerful and clear answer to prayer, a friend of mine, in a moment of unbelief, asked this question. He was honest, at least. How do you know that that wouldn't have happened anyway? That's called fatalism. Listen, some God says that some things... Listen, God says some things absolutely will not happen unless you pray about them. Now, that, how that works in his sovereignty, I don't get it, but this is what, look how James put it like this. James said this, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. Here's the fifth juxtaposition, Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion. And here is Jesus at the very end of his life, just before he is betrayed and crucified. He looks at his disciples, Judas being present, and he says, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at this table. For the Son of Man goes, watch it, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Look at the juxtaposition here, side by side. God's sovereignty 
man's responsibility. Judas wasn't off the hook, though a lot of people have tried to get him off the hook. Some of you remember the 1970 famous uh, rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, with lots of catchy tunes and a blasphemous portrayal of Jesus. In, in there, in that opera, Judas actually sings to Jesus these words. He says, I've been used. You knew it all the time, God. I'll never know why you used me for your crime. And yet Judas was complicit. And the text is crystal clear in his rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, was he not? And yet there it was in the plan, determined beforehand. By the way, you're going to be held accountable just like Judas was. If you sit here and reject the Son of God and continue to trust yourself, you continue to trust your church, you continue to trust your baptism, you continue to trust a dozen different things that will never get you to heaven, you will stand before the living God for that. You can't blame God for your rejection. In fact, when Peter preached the very first gospel message after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he said this. Listen, imagine being those 19 different dialects in Jerusalem at Pentecost when Peter just tattooed them with these words. Watch this in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now wait for it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, sovereignty, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Responsibility. And there it is in juxtaposition. The betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus. It's all there. But let's get more practical. Here's another area of sovereignty and responsibility. How about just leading somebody to Jesus, okay? By the way, I love that expression. If I love to say I had the joy of leading her to Christ. I had the joy of leading him to Christ. That's a great and very biblical expression because if you think about it, it's not boastful to say that. In fact, it's actually very humble. When I say I led him to Christ, all I'm saying is, I led him to Christ. I didn't save him. I brought him to Jesus. That's all that says. Jesus is the one who saved him. Amen? That's all that is. And yet, we all have to agree that God alone saves. Yet he uses witnessing to exercise his sovereign power. Now, don't, I guess this is a, just a quick sidebar. Don't mistake responsibility with free will. Some of you unwittingly betray your weak theology when you say things like, well, we all have free will, and you know, basically I just mean, you know, God gave everybody free will, so it's sort of up to them to use it. If this was a game show, I'd go, eh, that's bad thinking. Mark this down. In salvation, God doesn't give us a free will. He gives us a freed-up will. 
Your will and mine is bound. There is nothing you can do to trust God. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And last I checked, dead people don't get up on their own. Amen? God is the one who interacts with your will. He's the one who, who frees up that bound will. My will, left to itself, will always oppose the truth. And does oppose the truth. Here's how James put it. And we don't think of James as the big theologian. He's more of a practitioner. But he said, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Have you ever read that? Whose will saved you? Answer the question. God's will saved you. If you're saved, you ask, if that's the case, where, where does soul winning come in? See, God chooses to use his sinful children to bring the gospel to bear upon other souls. That's why Jesus said before he ascended to heaven, all authority has been given to me. Go! Make disciples, preach the gospel to all nations, because that's our joy to lead them to Christ. Amen? But a lopsided view of this almost killed the modern mission movement when William Carey, the father of modern missions, stood before these individuals so enamored with their Reformed theology that they'd taken it to, an, a, they'd taken it to such a degree that they'd left out the responsibility that we have to tell people about Jesus. And he pled with them about the nations and their need to be saved. And one astute theologian said, sit down, Mr. Carey. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help. And aren't you glad, aren't we glad, that he didn't listen to that idiot? You think about it. The same Paul who declared, God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, said in the very next chapter, how can they believe without hearing about him? <laughs> right? Side by side. My favorite, I, we're not going to put up, but you can mark uh, 2 Timothy 2.10. It's my favorite because it just I love things that are concise. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul said, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's an awesome verse. Therefore I endure, I work, I do, I evangelize, I'm preaching, I'm laying the gospel bare, I'm giving my life for this. For, this, for who? For those God has chosen and will be saved. Juxtaposition, side by side, sovereignty, responsibility. And then lastly, restoring one to Jesus. And there's more, but I want to include this because believers are called to call so-called believers who are living in sin to repentance. And this is an important point because we are living in a generation where believers so-called in Jesus Christ are getting, are, they think they're getting away with horrific lifestyles that are absolutely counter to the gospel. But it's the church's call to call them out. We do so realizing that just as, listen, just as only God can save, 
only God can restore. Nevertheless, he uses his obedient, responsible followers to enact his will over the rebel. You say, where does it say that in the Bible? I'm glad you asked. Here it is right here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24. Look at this. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Notice, we have to speak. God grants repentance. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the Sam, the devil, after, after being captured by him to do his will. That's what a rebel is doing. So I'm, I'm, there's somebody in this room right now. I'm not going to embarrass them. But they were in that. They had been cast out. They had been, they had been disfellowshipped. They had been disciplined out of the church because of their constant rebellion. But God, through God's people making their appeals to him, God granted him repentance. He's been reinstated as a member. Hallelujah. And yet just the other day, I was in the grocery store. And I encountered a hardened, unrepentant, ongoing adulterer. We literally ran into each other almost. Both of us were surprised. It was not a time to confront with people all around us. And my spirit was so grieved by their wickedness. But then I remembered, they are in bondage. They are, they have been captured by Satan to do his will. And only God can free them up. And but by grace, so go I. Amen? Why do we struggle with this? Why do we struggle with this? That's the question. Here's the answer. Our God is too small. We have too large a view of ourselves and too small a view of God. In his book, Not God Enough, J.D. Greer argues, we carry, generally speaking, very small views of God. I love this quote. Most Christians haven't rejected God. They have just reduced him. A few years ago, a young man was in my office who had bought into open theism. That's what you do when you have a small view of God. You have to figure out, you got to reconcile all this, and it just doesn't make sense, and I can't see it, and i got to bring God down to my level, and open theism is your ticket out. Open theism is where God adjusts his plan based on new information of unforeseeable events. In other words, he's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things, but he's so wise, he's able to sort of roll with the punches. And he was advocating, he was actually evangelizing me toward accepting this theology. My response to the young man, and he was a sincere young man, was my response was, you have a heretical view of God. Your God is too small, which brought him to tears. Listen, from time immortal, 
Man has tempted to bring God down to his level in order to comprehend him. We're trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. We're trying to unscrew the, un the inscrutable. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And God speaks through the psalmist when he says, you thought I was just like you. Have you ever read that, by the way? That's pretty powerful stuff there. That's God talking to you and me. You thought I was just like you. Well, I'm not just like you. The British philosopher Evelyn Underhill wrote, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. John Piper admitted this in a very humble moment in a, in a Q&A a few years back. It just takes a few seconds, but watch this. Is it uh, an antinomy or a contradiction or humanly inexplicable how God can be absolutely sovereign over all human decisions and those decisions still be responsible, accountable decisions? I think that is uh, the one for me anyway for which I don't have an, an ultimate answer. Did you hear what he said? I don't have an ultimate answer. Back to J.D. Greer in his book. He calls his readers to trust the God whose ways are so much higher than ours by asking us, and I'm quoting him, think about the universe, he says. God spoke into existence three septillion, that's three with 24 zeros after it. Stars with a word. I, on the other hand, can barely lift the corner of my mattress. And only if I wear a back brace for the rest of the day. It's pretty funny. But here's the line I want that I loved. If the measure of God's wisdom is as high above mine as his power is above mine, am I really in a place to evaluate it? He concludes, it just makes sense to me that some things may not make sense to me. Are you okay with that? You better be, or you're not worshiping the one true God. Moses wrote, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So, how do we conclude? How should I respond to a God who rules but calls me to be responsible? Three ways. God is wise. Trust him. A woman came to Charles Spurgeon one day and said, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the, and, the, and the responsibility of men. And his reply was, ma'am, I never have to reconcile friends. That was a good line. David wrote in Psalm 139, he said, he, 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 the bookends of it go like this. He says, God, you have searched me and known me. That's a cold, hard truth right there, right? Nothing personal, just, ugh, God. You have searched me and known me. Then he begins to work through the omniscience, the omnipresence, and the omnipotence of God throughout this great psalm. And he concludes with these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Right? See if there's any wicked way in me and Lead me in the way everlasting. Now, 
At the beginning, he said, Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. At the end, he says, search me, O God. What was he doing? Here's what he was doing. David was welcoming what God was already doing. And that's where some of you struggle. You know the truth that God knows you, but you don't always welcome it. Trust him. Trust his wisdom. God is wise. He's too loving to be unkind. He's too wise to be mistaken. When you can't see his hand, you can always trust his heart. God is worthy. Serve him. Why should you serve God? Because you are responsible. That's why. You are a responsible human being. And you will stand before the living God. Everyone in this room will stand before the living God, either according to Romans 14, which says all Christians must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, or in Revelation 20, where you're not a Christian and you stand before the living God at the great white throne judgment. That's a horrible place to be. Because if you're standing in that last judgment, you go to hell. Because you have rejected the sovereign God who's loved you through his son, Jesus. But all of us will stand before him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is worthy. So serve him. And lastly, because he's wonderful, God is wonderful. Adore him. Wonder isn't doubt, it isn't bewildering, it isn't, isn't fear. It's wonder, it's, it's fascination, it's astonishment, it's amazement, it's adoration. That's why David said in Psalm 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I can't attain unto it. So, my neighbor asked this question, okay, Amy, and uh, so I said, you're not a robot, you're not a pawn. I said, imagine that you and your husband and your little family are going to jump on an A380 Airbus, biggest plane in the sky, upper deck, lower deck, personal, personal cabins, showers. How would you like that the next flight you take? And this particular one, let's say, has a playground even on it. And it's a four-hour flight. You, you get on the flight, and, and uh, the pilot is a personal friend. And you know him. He's even told you he's going to communicate with you. You have freedom to communicate with him and tell you things about the plane and whatnot, any things you're concerned about. He'll, he'll, he'll communicate with you. What's more is your best friends get to go on this flight with you. Now, you're going from Des Moines to Florida, four-hour flight. And you can, there's a lot you can do. You can travel the cabin, hang out with your friends. And on this particular occasion, uh, you are actually taking advantage. You're, you're communicating with the pilot. And he's communicating with you, but not always. In fact, you asked him a really hard question. You were concerned about some safety matter, and the pilot didn't get back with you. It was really kind of troubling you. What's more, I said to her, you brought, you, you brought some other baggage on this plane. You and your husband had a little spat the night before. And you're not really getting along all that well. And you really haven't dealt with it. And really, he was just mean the way he spoke to you. And that is really, really simmering in you. But you're on the flight. And your best friends are there. So it's all cool. And you're on the playground. And, and your little one is playing. And she 
Her head hits the only non-rubberized surface and gets a big old bump and a huge bruise. And it's just, just it's the worst thing in the world. And you're having a meltdown right there. And out of the corner of your eye, you see a woman has stolen your anniversary watch that you set aside. You, you watched her put it in the purse. And you go apoplectic in the moment. You're yelling at her. Everybody's looking at you, not the woman who stole the watch. And she's denying it. And nobody's doing anything about it. You are completely frustrated. And you still haven't heard back from this pilot friend. It's just the end of the world. But you find your friends and they encourage you and they calm you like a good friend does. Speak truth to you. And the next thing you know, the plane has landed. The plane has landed. And as it's taxing, your husband puts his strong arm around you and says, honey, what I said last night was not kind. Will you please forgive me? Suddenly, a U.S. Marshal shows up who's been on the plane the whole time. Guess they got cameras everywhere. He saw the thief. She's been arrested. The watch is returned. You look at your little girl, her bruises, it's gone. And as you're walking off the the flight, the pilot says to you, hey, hey, just to let you know, I know I didn't get back to you on that question, but your safety was never in doubt. Now, here's the deal. As I said to Amy, you had all kinds of freedom while you were on that flight to roam about, talk with people, argue with people, get into spats, whatever. But all the while, that plane had a start and a stopping point, a beginning and a destination. And make no mistake, you were not, nor could you if you wanted to, change the destination of that flight. And what do you know? The pilot knew what he was doing. And so it is with God. You have a beginning. You have a destination. And call it whatever you will. You have responsibility in between. And you'll be held accountable for the way you conducted yourself on the dash between the beginning and the end. And all of us stand before God. So wonder at that. He's wonderful. Adore him. He's all wise. Adore him. Right? And he's certainly worth and worthy of all of our praise. Let's bow for a prayer. God, we thank you. Our time is up. We ask that you would bless, that you would help us to get a big picture of you and not a small one. Forgive us for small views of you and big views of ourselves. God, I pray for those in this room who've never seen your greatness, your bigness in all of its glory on the, on the cross where your son died. That's where your wisdom was exemplified. And if you have never come to Jesus who made himself small for you, would you do so this morning? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as you're commanded to do so. Trust him as your Savior and Lord and believing his death and resurrection was for you personally. 
I know that some of you here today are struggling because as responsible as you've been, as obedient as you've attempted to be, albeit imperfectly, life hasn't, hasn't given you all of the advantages you'd hoped it would. But know that the plane will land one day and your divine pilot will reassure you then as he assures you now he's still in charge and you can adore him for that would you for that we're grateful Lord and we pray these things in Jesus name Amen. Let's stand